Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in these moments, we ask that you would accomplish the purpose for which you send your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start with a question. Have you ever thought the world revolves around you? Now, I have to admit, I've had hunches that the world revolves around me at times. I'm going to give you some evidence. It started in grade school when the American Lung Society said me as a grade schooler was going to change the world along with my classmates. Uh, We were going to be the smoke-free class of 2000. Uh, We were given t-shirts, and we even had a jingle Uh, The jingle went like this, we are the smoke-free class of 2000, two triple zero, everyone's a hero. Now, you might know that never really happened, but uh, I praise them for seeing the potential of of me as a grade schooler. I I thought the world revolves around me because I was able to accomplish my dream of becoming a pastor. Eight years of school, three semesters of college, Latin, wainy, weedy, weaky, I came, I saw, I conquered, here I am. I thought the world revolves around me because I remember being a grade schooler in Beaverdam, Wisconsin, and I thought there was this idea that that God was going to return in my lifetime, and he was giving me a hint through a thunderstorm. And why wouldn't he? The world revolves around me. Now, if this is not yet proof enough for you, I would go on and I would say, I was a winner on The Price is Right. I don't know if you know that. Not only that, but this week in New Lenox opened a Raising Canes. I don't know if you've heard of this. And I went two minutes left for uh, the entry to win Raising Canes for a year. And sure enough, what more evidence do you need that the world revolves around me than free chicken? But I bring this up because I wonder, have you ever thought the world revolves around you? I don't know what story you'd use. Maybe for you, it was marrying your dream spouse. They finally said, I do. Maybe for you, it was buying your dream house, and you walked over that threshold, and you're like, oh, I can't believe it. The world is about me. Maybe for you, it was landing your dream job after years of study, and they finally hired you to the position and the company that you wanted, and you're like, wow. You know, maybe the world does revolve all around me. Now, something I recognize is that some of you are thinking, this is preposterous, Pastor. The world doesn't revolve around you. And by the way, it doesn't revolve around me. Let me tell you about the week that I had. (laughs) I empathize with that. I, I get it. But it doesn't stop me from trying to prove this premise. It's our first fill-in, and this is where we're going to go today. That I believe, regardless of your thoughts, we are all pre-programmed to think it's all about me. I'm going to prove that in our time together. Narcissist. Have you heard that word? Raise your hands if you know that word, narcissist. Now, call me old, but I didn't grow up with this word. I grew up with words like egotistical and selfish and arrogant. But narcissist was new to me. I've I've recently come across the definition of narcissism. Uh, Let's kick it old school and get a definition from Merriam-Webster. A narcissist is an extremely self-centered person who has an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Who comes to mind when you think of a narcissist? You have a coworker or a boss... An ex, a friend, 
History is filled with narcissists. I consider Nero for one. Nero who played the fiddle while Rome was burning. His city was burning and he's playing a fiddle. Why? So that he can build himself a bigger palace and so he can build a statue of himself that was 10 feet tall. Hitler was a narcissist who thought he was part of a superior race and we know the horror of where those thoughts led him. Genghis Khan was a narcissist who had so many wives and concubines that today 16 million men can trace their ancestry back to Genghis Khan. 0.5 of all of the world's population is because of Genghis Khan. Do you know any narcissists? Now, it's easy to think of other people. What about us? I have a quiz real quick of seeing if you have any narcissistic tendencies, at least. The first quiz is this. When you post a picture on social media, do you post the picture that makes you look good or that makes others look good? Better yet, did you even see the faces of the other people? I saw a picture of a family. I think the dad posted it because he's the only one who looks halfway good. No one else is looking. This is a classic case of someone who's like, you know what, I'm, I'm doing fine. Another test, when you're at a store and you're picking which line to go to, the checkout line, do you ever see which one is the fastest? And what do you feel if you pick the slow line? What do you feel if the light above the attendant starts blinking and they need to call something up? How how does that sit with you? Final test, how are you on the roads? When someone cuts you off, When someone's going obviously too slow? Are you calm and peaceful about it? Oh, of course. I'm sure they're just late for work. Why don't you go ahead? Is that what you're thinking when you're driving? Or is it possible that you and I also struggle with narcissistic tendencies? Well, if so, if you answered yes to any of these or can relate to any of these, you're not alone. We're going to open God's word, and in our time together, we're going to see that the disciples of Jesus were narcissists, or at very least, had narcissistic tendencies. So I'll never forget one time, they had this argument over who would be the greatest, and and it was so crazy the day they had this discussion, because moments earlier, Jesus had just washed their feet. It was Monday, Thursday, and he had just washed their feet, and he did it telling them, this is what you should do. You should serve as I have just served. And moments later, they're arguing over who's the greatest. The irony of that discussion on that day after that display. And now today, as we dig in, James and John use their mother to try to get ahead. They don't even ask themselves. They have mom do their bidding. We're going to see what their desire is and what Jesus' response is. So let's go to Matthew chapter 20. If you have a Bible, feel free to open that Bible and take any notes that you want. Feel free to follow along here or in the worship folder. Let's dig in. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. (laughs) You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, 
you will indeed drink from my cup. And that, by the way, is maybe a prediction of just as Jesus died so that they would be martyrs as well. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are the powerful words of God. Could you say out loud or to a neighbor, it's not about me? It's not about me. Let's talk about that. So someone that I think the world kind of revolves around, someone who's really made it is a character named Tom Brady. I don't know what you know about Tom Brady, but he's got seven Super Bowls, five Super Bowl MVP rings. Um, and, and it's interesting learning from Tom Brady, someone you'd say is the goat of, of football, uh, at least for a quarterback. Um, after he won a Super Bowl, these are the words that stuck out in my mind for a guy who had made it. Tom Brady said, why do I have those Super Bowl rings and still think there's something out there greater. There's got to be more than this. So the guy who had achieved something far beyond what we dream of if you played high school sports or college sports, the professional athlete who achieved the top of the top, said, what's it all about? Or then I consider Jim Carrey. I referenced him last week in a movie called Bruce Almighty. Uh, maybe you know the name Jim Carrey. And when he got famous, he said these words, I hope everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of. So they'll know it's not the answer. People who we say the world kind of revolves around these celebrities, we know their name, their household names, are saying, wow, this is not all that it's cracked up to be. But it's not just true for them. In Bible class right now, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes and we learn about Solomon. Solomon had in spades fame and legacy and power and wisdom and riches. He had all of it beyond what we can dream of. And when it comes to all of it, here was Solomon's perspective in Ecclesiastes 2. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. As we look at people who lived the high life, the world revolving around them, this is what we need to take away. It's our next take fill-in. That if we live a life that's all about me, we're going to find that that life is meaningless. I want you to imagine the moment of your eulogy. Puts things in perspective. Imagine people talking about all that you did. Maybe they'll share your humor. Maybe they'll share your wisdom. Maybe they'll share what you did for the family, how wealthy you were, your accomplishments at work. But I got to tell you, if that's all they share, and God is not a part of it, your story ends there. And it won't really matter. Because it is God's story that matters. It is God's story that goes on forever and ever. Amen.
And to the degree that we wrap up our story with his story is the degree that it matters. It's the degree that we make life matter. The degree that we give God glory and point to him. But beyond living a meaningless life, there's something else that happens when we make life all about us, and we see it in the lesson. So James and John had their plan, they used their mother, they go and they ask for the two top spots in heaven, the two positions of power for all of eternity. And when they get back to their group, what is the reaction of the ten? Where they're like, oh, great idea, we're so happy for you, I, I, I hope you get the spots, like, way to go. Bringing mom in, great. Oh, yeah. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They were mad because they had just called shotgun in heaven as if you could call shotgun in heaven. They were mad because they wanted those two top spots. Maybe God would grant them and now they're left out. What's left for us, they might be thinking. Isn't this a picture of society today? where people so aggressively run after what they want, they don't care who they have to step on. They don't care who they have to make mad. They don't care who they're frustrating. All they can see with laser focus is what they want, regardless of what that means. And if you've ever been on the other side of that, Maybe you and I need to pause and ask, is there anything we're pursuing with reckless abandon, anything that we have the blinders on, and maybe we need to pause and say, I know it's good for me, but is it good for my neighbor? I know it's good for me, but is it good for my family? I know it's good for me, but is it good for the people that I work with? Is it good for the people around me? Because what I know is this, our next fill-in, that if we live a life that's all about me, it's dangerous. God's glory is clouded. Our neighbor gets hurt. People are frustrated and angry because you have been selfish and I have been selfish. And maybe we deserve their anger. But it's also dangerous spiritually. If we live, it's all about me. Spiritually speaking, this is the most dangerous place to be. So I remember being at seminary, and there was a professor, Dean Brenner, and he kept talking about the opinio legis, a Latin term. And the opinio legis is Latin for the opinion of the law. And he taught that the opinion of the law is this, that we think we can keep the law, and by keeping the law, so save ourselves. I don't know if you've ever thought that. The, the spiritual default setting of people is this, that good people go to heaven. That when it comes to the law, if we keep the law good enough, that's what makes us right with God, and that's how heaven is won. And the spiritual default setting with a narcissistic tendency is very, very dangerous. Because the idea that good people can get to heaven is not God's idea. It is not the gospel. It is against what God has said. Because here's the truth. In Romans 3, Paul gave us a great equalizer. 
He said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all on the same level. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. He says all of us have this in common. There is no one better. There are just sinners in need of the grace of God. And if the grace of God does not come our way, we are lost now and forever. But praise be to Jesus. Because it goes on and says, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You and I who are lost, you and I who are hopeless, have found grace in Jesus. And why? Because he didn't live for himself. Because he emptied himself. Because he suffered and he died in our place so that we could know grace. And that's what you have. You have grace. You have forgiveness. You have the right to be called a dearly loved child of God, but it wasn't about you, friends. It was about Jesus choosing you, redeeming you, and making you clean. And Jesus is the hero. And to talk about Jesus' love, I love the last line. Jesus pointed out what he did in that last line. Jesus said um, in Matthew 20, um, the next one, next one, Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This was the example. And this is our joy. This has changed our lives. And this principle can change the world if we so let it, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to talk about the glory of what Jesus did here. And and talk about the beauty of it. I want to talk about something that's coming soon. Um, I don't know how many of you really get into Christmas. Uh, How many of you are are ready to trade uh, pumpkin spice for pine needles? Um, and, And there are so many things that you can love about Christmas. You can love decorating. I don't know how many of you love to decorate quickly. Uh, You can love the music. And and yes, I love Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Every two hours it plays. You can love the movies, Elf and the Christmas Story. Kids, you can love the presents. You can love the snowfall. You can love Chicago and Macy's windows and the walnut room. There is so much to love that when it comes to Christmas, people in our culture, they say this, that Christmas, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And though it is wonderful for us, When's the last time you looked at Christmas through Jesus' lens? So consider Jesus before Christmas. In heaven, the angels praising him. King of kings ruling right now. Comfortable, not having to deal with the stench and the smell and the the disease of earth. What happens at Christmas? At Jesus' birth, the creator is now being cared for by the creation. Mary, the creation, is nursing and changing the creator God. How humbling. When Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't pick fine linens and luxurious touches. No, he picks a peasant's household. He has the stench of animals and the scratch of hay as they place him in a manger. When Jesus comes, this world has a seething hate for him. 
Herod, uh, he announces that we need to kill everyone two years and younger. There's this, this killing of the innocents. And, and Jesus has to flee with his family to Egypt. And, and, and during his life, most people misunderstand him. His own family didn't know he was the Messiah, his own brothers and sisters. Many people want to manipulate him for their own means. Uh, many people just want the free food that he made and the miracles. And most people want him dead in the very end as they yell crucify until it finally happens. Christmas is the most wonderful time of year for us but it is the essence and the beginning and the pinnacle of sacrifice for Jesus. What does it compare to more? Another analogy, I don't know if you've ever had a really nice vacation. Show a picture of a really nice vacation. And maybe you've been at a resort where the customer service is so good, they know you by name and they treat you by family, right? Hey, how's it going? They anticipate your every need. And so when you go out to the pool, they give you a towel. And they don't even just have a towel. They have suntan lotion. And then in the middle of the day, they come around with like free smoothies or frozen grapes. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Been on a vacation where you rent a new car. You know what, that like, what that's like? Smooth as butter, leather seats. The best of technology. Everything works as it should. You're on vacation, you spend money for a great meal, maybe some surf and turf. Steak medium rare with some lobster. I might just get some mahi-mahi too. That's vacation. But then what's it feel like coming home? Your coworkers don't act like the pool attendants, do they? The sack lunch that you brought for work, it's, it's not the same as surf and turf, is it? The car that you come back to, regardless of the year, it's not as brand new as the rental car. Everything from that vacation now seems worse and ugly and uncomfortable. And if you can relate to this at all, you are now seeing Christmas through Jesus' lens. Jesus had power. Jesus had praise. Jesus had comfortability. And he gives it all up for hate, for uncomfortability, for a world that is against him. And so Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 these words. He says, He in, in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. From conception to crib to cross to crypt, his whole life breathed. It is not about me. And because of this, he saved the world. And so our next fill-in is this. Jesus lived a life that said, it is not about me. Look at Christmas again. Look at his life again. Look at his ministry. What day did Jesus wake up and like, you know what, I'm just to do me. It's all about me. But I do imagine... If we replay the stories, what would have happened if he took that stance? What would have happened if he did what is so common in culture? I think of him before the devil. Maybe you remember that account. What would, it, what would have happened if Jesus lived for himself when tempted in the desert? The devil says, throw yourself down. I know Jesus could have thrown the devil down and made the devil worship him. But Jesus was not before the devil for himself. Or then I think of Good Friday and he's brought before Herod. 
And Herod wants to use Jesus like a puppet. Herod just wants Jesus to do some miracles. What if Jesus lives for himself in that moment? He, he could have made Herod dance. He could have turned Herod into a dog. He could have made Herod do some tricks. He could have had the power to do that. But Jesus was not before Herod for himself. What if while on the cross, Jesus lived for himself? And as the mockers shout, he saved others, but he cannot save himself, what would he have done? He could have zapped him dead, could have opened the ground to swallow him. They could have died of dysentery. But Jesus was not on the cross for himself. No, the reason the world was saved is because Jesus lived a life that's not about me. And because he emptied himself, he saved the world. So what is our takeaway this morning? What can we glean from this? You know, when it comes to the love of Jesus, we see a love very similar in a parent's love. You know, in Chicago, there is this place that's all about a parent's sacrifice and a child's happiness. And this place is called the American Girl Doll Store. Unlike the signature room, it is still open, friends. At the American Girl Doll Store, the children get very happy taking their dolls to lunch. Maybe you've been there. They have a chair for them at lunch. Uh, they can dress them up and do their hair. It's a great time. But the target audience for this experience is not the adult male. I appreciate the coworkers who sometimes empathize. They give a look as you enter. You know, Dad, we know this is not for you, but if you're lucky, it'll all be over soon. But adult males go there. I've been there with my girls. Because that's what love does. Love doesn't care about what's in it for me. Love wants to wow someone by its very expression. Love wants to go way beyond what is the normal, way beyond what is expected. Love gives beyond all reasonable measure. And so what do we glean from Jesus? I don't know what you know about him, but Jesus has a crazy love. He's got an amazing love. He's got an unfathomable love. He's got a love that goes higher and wider and deeper and longer than we even know right now. See, Jesus' love is the truest treasure in a world of transitory pleasure and fake goods. Jesus' love, it's better than American Girl Doll. It's better than riches. It's better than fame. Jesus' love is it. Because this is what Jesus' love means. His love means you're never going to be alone. Because he's never going to leave or forsake you. His love means he's working for your good. When you feel like the world is revolving around you or not, he's using the horrible things even for your good. His love means you don't have to build your life on a failing love, the love of someone else. The love of someone else who at their best moment can't even give you close to what God gave you. And at their worst moment, their love just manipulates you to their means. No, his love is better, friends. His love means that someday we'll return to his original plan. Where we don't cry. And we don't have disease. And we don't have pain. We don't have heartache. Where we live in harmony with God now and forever. That's what his love means. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
said that when it came to his life, he would love us to the very end. That when it came to his cross, he went resolutely to Jerusalem to prove what love does. That there is no greater love than a love that says, it's not about me, it's about you. It's about how I can be used so that you can be benefited. And whether you know it or not, God's world has revolved around you. Jesus proves it. What he endured, what he went through, was with your name in mind. But what if, friends, we learn from this? And what if in response we said, God, I love you so much that what you did for me, I want to do in return. That I don't want to empty myself. I'm sick of making life all about me, God. I'm sick of hurting people. I want to empty myself and live for the good of my neighbor and your glory. If you want more practical steps on how to do that, I invite you to come to every week of this series to pick up that book. Because God's plans for you are good. They give you hope and a future purpose in this life. Let me pray for you. Dear Jesus, how great is your love. We've been able to see the lengths of it once again, and we're just so thankful. We're thankful you didn't give up on us, even though you had the right to. We're thankful that you emptied yourself so that we could be saved. Lord, by the Spirit, we just pray we could become like you. We have just moments on earth. We are a mist of vapor, a flower here one day and gone the next. Lord, help us not to waste our lives, but use it for you. Help us to say about this life, it's not about me. Use us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, may it guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, at this time we have the opportunity to confess our faith, and, and today we'll use the words of the Nicene Creed as we just confess who God is together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. There it is. Thank you. Uh, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.